So I, I try to explain to people what exactly discernment is. If you were to explain to somebody what discernment is, what would you tell them? I think that discernment is a process of listening to yourself, listening to the community that knows you and has been with you and has nurtured you, and listening to God to see if you have not just the gifts, um, but also the ability and the fruitfulness to serve in ministry. Welcome to With Grits and Grace, Love Molly Kate. I'm Molly Kate. Today's episode is a conversation with my dear friend, Reverend Stacy Harwell Dye. We discuss everything from what is discernment to the role that the church has, as a whole has played in racism and inequality, the active harm that church communities have caused for the LBGTQIA plus communities, and do we want mm-hmm, and do we want to be tied to institutions that have this baggage? There's also a moment at about 40 minutes end that I had to cut out because we each had to go take care of little ones, like the one you just heard. Uh, so you may hear that in the edits. This is a very insightful conversation that I hope will help you gain some insight about conversations happening in faith communities, as well as how Stacy herself came to the conclusion that she was being called to ministry. I know it has helped me. Thank you very much. Yeah, you looking for me? So you just said something. Say say it again if you don't mind. I said God God's call never comes at a good time. I think that is so fascinating. So I, I try to explain to people what exactly discernment is. If you were to explain to somebody what discernment is, what would you tell them? I think that discernment is a process of listening to yourself, listening to the community that knows you and has been with you and has nurtured you, and listening to God to see if you have not just the gifts, um, but also the ability and the fruitfulness to serve in ministry. I think that's and I'll start, really good. Yeah. I also want to say, too, that I think that... For me, discernment is, can I be an ordained ministry or can I serve out my understanding of what ministry is in the capacity of a really faithful lay person? And I think that too often churches act like the only folks who are, quote, ministers are those who've gone to seminary and have gone through the process to become ordained. But so much ministry at the church is done by really faithful lay people uh, who have other jobs. <laughs> and for right. some folks, ministry in an ordained setting will never be their calling. 
Um, but they are either trained um, or have just really done a lot of, of work through maybe a Bible study or through discernment with a mentor and can actually lend a lot of really good ministry as a very faithful lay person. Some of the best ministers I know are lay people. I think that's so fascinating. And that really is a lot of what this whole discernment process is for me is figuring out, okay, am I actually being called to the ordained side of things or is it lay ministry? I true, I truly don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also really interesting to talk to people like you who I know and respect and who have known me for, I don't even know how long we've known each other, honestly. Um, well over 10 years, years. what 15 (laughs) years I don't know but probably (laughs) so you know so how did how when you went through discernment what was that like for you how did you know that you were called to the ordained ministry or how did you figure it out so I want to tell them a story um yes when I was in college at Mercer University go Bears um I spent a lot of time in campus ministry. First, I was over at the Baptist Student Union, and they were excellent at providing lots of opportunities for students to be involved uh, and to get involved with missions and ministry. Um, And then uh, towards the end of my freshman year, I found the Wesley Foundation Mm -hmm. of Macon, and it was right across the street. And I also, through the Wesley Foundation, found Centenary United Methodist Church, which was right across the street. And with both of those, I found a beautiful community of love and grace and acceptance. I found really excellent preaching, both from Reverend Michael McCord, um, Reverend Edwin, and then Reverend Tim Bagwell, who Mm -hmm. eventually ended up at Centenary. And in almost all of these cases, they were helping me understand things about God and my relationship with God and my relationship with the church that I had not really thought about or explored before. Um, I'd gone to lots of different churches growing up. We were, my dad was in the military. We moved around every three months or every three years. <laughs> that would be horrible. <laughs> every three months. Let me say that again. <sighs> my dad was in the military. We moved around every three years. And I think every time we moved, my dad really emphasized trying to find a church that we could go that would both serve us and where we could serve and plug in. And so we ended up at different denominations at different points in our journey, Presbyterian, Baptist. Uh, We did end up at a Methodist church one time when I was in middle school. Um, But it wasn't really until college that I got to choose for myself where I was going to Mm -hmm. church and what my involvement with that would look like. And so I was going to school for journalism. That was my major. And I really loved journalism. Um, My minor was initially photography. And then later um, I started to take uh, classes because at Mercer, you're required to take either an Old or a New Testament class. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of resenting that at first. I was like, I've been to Sunday school my whole life. I taught Sunday school. <laughs> like, why do I have to take this New Testament class? This is ridiculous. And then I took it and I loved it. I loved the academic study of Christianity um, and of religion. Um, Mercer at the time didn't have a religion degree per se. It was a Christianity degree. Um, although looking at some of my friends who got standard religion degrees, ours wasn't that different. We had to take a, a class on religions that weren't Christianity so that we would understand them better. We had to take, take a theology class. Um, it was a really, really good uh, major. And I actually ended up double majoring in journalism and Christianity wow. because I just loved taking the classes. Yeah. It was kind of um, nerdy. 
But all the while, while I was doing all of these classes, I also just really fell in love with the Wesley Foundation and with college and campus ministry. People were coming up to me and talking to me about things that I did not feel equipped to talk to them about. And in almost every single case, they felt comfortable talking to me about these things because Mm. they had seen me at Wesley Foundation and thought that I had some sort of grounding in order to be able to talk to them about this stuff. I remember just really being confused as to why people would want to do that, talk to this person that, you know, they didn't know. I mean, in many cases, they were good friends of mine. But I remember turning to Reverend McCord, Michael McCord at the time, and saying, I don't know why people keep coming to me, but I obviously need tools to help them through these really difficult times. Can you help me? And he was right there with me, um, providing me guidance on how to talk to folks who were going through some pretty difficult times in their life. Um, but I loved that piece of it. Um, I came to love it. At first, it scared me. But I came to love <laughs> that folks could turn to people um, in times of crisis and, and get help. But I also really loved um, being working at the Wesley Foundation. So I worked up front. And I loved people coming in and talking. I loved uh, arranging um, Bible studies and thinking about Bible studies and planning retreats and thinking about worship services. I sang with the worship and praise team and loved that. Um, And all the while, I was also learning more and more about justice issues. My senior uh, work that I did at Mercer for my, my honors thesis for Christianity um, was around welcoming the stranger and mm. it was around immigration and how, uh, three different religious traditions, the United Methodist church, the Southern Baptist convention and the Catholic church thought about immigration and, and how they use scripture, reason, tradition, and experience, mm. um, to think about immigration. So I had this, this kind of multi-level experience of loving working at the Wesley foundation, loving the academic study of Christianity, and then thinking critically about what our faith had to say about social issues and why that mattered. Mm-hmm. And so I, towards in my senior year, I remember having this moment thinking, you know, I'm going to school for journalism. And really, honestly, if you had asked me probably all the way up to my senior year of college, what I was going to do with my degree, I would tell you, you know, I'm going to go work for a newspaper or a magazine. I loved magazines. I still love magazine journalism and would really <laughs> love to, <laughs> I love it. And I thought, you know, as I started getting more into religion courses, um, one of the first things that I was going to do for my senior honors thesis was to write a thesis about why religion beat reporters should have higher uh, a higher degree in religion Ooh. as opposed to journalism. And the reason why I thought that is because I've just seen so many bad religion pieces. Yeah. I just didn't quite get, it felt too almost, I'm not going to say too objective because I want journalism to be, to strive for objectivity, but it felt like they hadn't done their homework. Um, and yeah. they either belittled, belittled people of faith or just didn't understand um, faith and how faith interacted with culture and politics. And so I anyway, but yeah. I, I started working on that and realized I would much rather work on an, a senior honors thesis in Christianity than journalism. So that was clue number one. And that while I cared about that, I really didn't care enough about it to like go to graduate school um, for journalism. Right. Um, and so I'm arguing, hey, journalists should have more education in religion. 
I'm thinking, hey, what does more education and religion look like for me? Mm. And hey, how can I do this thing that I love to do, Wesley Foundation? And I loved the church that I was serving at the time or was attending at the time was sitting near United Methodist. And I love that community and thought all United Methodist churches were these beautiful places where people from all um, different socioeconomic status and all different races could be together and worship um, and celebrate differences and celebrate big questions and and have a, a critical approach to reading and understanding the Bible. I thought all United Methodist churches were like that, which... In retrospect, was really naive. <laughs> it's very interesting timing of you saying that right now because the Methodists are, there's some Methodists in their conference right now, right? Like, I think the South Georgia yeah. conference is happening. Yeah, that's right. And and this whole being welcoming thing is it's a big part of the conversation. Oh, my gosh. It's huge right now. Yeah. You almost can't have any Methodist conferences right now without talking about what we call disaffiliations. And so there are large swaths of United Methodist churches that are leaving the United Methodist denomination. There's also, I mean, the underreported part of this is that there's large swaths of churches that are staying too. (laughs) I loved the AJC finally had an article the other day, speaking of journalism and religion, the AJC finally had this article the other day that I was like, yes, finally. Almost every newspaper has published some version of Many United Methodist churches leave and they like have a number and they interview pastors who are leaving and the bishop and who's saying. And this headline on the Atlanta Journal Constitution article read, um, Most United Methodist churches in Georgia are staying. <laughs> and I was like, That is the headline that the majority of churches are staying. Yeah. And there's lots of reasons for these churches that are disaffiliating. Um, some of it is that they disagree with. Um, with my stance and with the stance of many others um, who believe in that a more inclusive church is possible, one that allows full ordination of folks across sexual orientation and gender orientation. Um, and then also, <laughs> we also believe that there should be, um, that we should be able to bless same-sex unions. And yeah. for many United Methodists, that's, that is... Uh, a breaking point for them. They do not agree with that, and they have felt the need to form their own denomination and to splinter from the United Methodist Church. Um, we had a large general conference about this in 2019. I remember and that. At, at, oh, my gosh, it was, it was so sad. At that conference, we were presented multiple ways to try to figure out a way forward. In fact, a committee had been formed in True United Methodist Style to study this, and they came to the conference with, okay, there are three ways we could do this. And the one that a lot of folks were pulling for was something called the One Church Plan, which would have allowed for different entities to make decisions that that made sense to them around ordination and marriage. And that seemed to be kind of a middle way, um, that may have been really helpful in the, in the United States. So that churches that who had pastors that would say, yes, this feels good for where we are theologically and where our churches, they could um, have a queer pastor. And then for the congregations who did not and who did not feel good with that, they would still be United Methodist. And they would say that is not the choice that we're making. And so that was an option. And what they ended up going with was actually tighter restrictions on, uh, basically, I shouldn't say tighter restrictions. It clarified and created a process which 
uh, had more severe penalties for clergy who broke the covenant around marriage. Um, so oh. now, if you uh, if you are a clergy person who marries a same sex couple, now you there the first offense I think is a, a one year suspension of your clergy credentials, and then the second offense I think you get your clergy credentials removed. That there's still all sorts of legalities around that. We have a just resolution process, and the person who brings a complaint against the person um, could seek just resolution before any mandatory minimums apply in these situations. Um, and there is still um, there are still a lot of bishops who are very by the book and will do everything according to the discipline. And there's a lot of bishops, like an openly uh, gay bishop that was just um, consecrated recently in the Western jurisdiction, and then another uh, bishop who is openly married to a woman, Bishop Karen Olavito. Um And so it depends largely on where you are in the United mm, States geographically okay. and which conference you're in yeah. as to how the the impact of that 2019 conference has been felt. But all that to say, there are lots of churches who are leaving the United Methodist Church. The experience that I had at this beautiful congregation across the street from Mercer was one of total acceptance. Um, And it was a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, We have, and and we still have at this church, um, beautiful uh, breakfast on Sunday Mm -hmm. mornings, where people from all across the community can eat together and break bread. There is this beautiful, uh, there are several same-sex couples and same-sex families that are there at that church. And it is just a beautiful place of welcome and love and holy acceptance. Um, And I am a better person for having been there. And I'm a better pastor for having pastored that congregation uh, when I got out of seminary. But yeah, I went into seminary (laughs) thinking, wow, I love the United Methodist Church. What a cool space. And it wasn't just for centenary's acceptance. And a lot of the reasons why I love it are genuinely true across the board. I love John Wesley's understanding of grace. And I know that makes me sound like a total nerd, (laughs) but I really do. I think that John Wesley gets it um, in a way that made so much sense to me when when I first learned it. John Wesley believed that God's grace came before us and that God's grace covers us even before we have any knowledge of it. That made a lot of sense to me. This is the reason why United Methodists baptize babies. Yeah. um, Because we believe that, you know, the baby, even though the baby is quote, not sinless, um, but we believe that God's grace covers uh, even infants. And I love the idea that, that there was a God who also called us to further, um, our walk and, our, and our, our idea of getting to know God better. And so Wesley talks about sanctification and justification as, you know, admitting that we keep trying to do right, but that thing that we don't want to do is the thing we do mm-hmm. um, and that we sin and that that's something we need to come to grips with and um, that we need to turn the other way. That's what repent means is to turn and, and do something different. And then also John Wesley believed that there was something to attain through a process of sanctification that we could be made perfect in God's love and God's will. And of course, if you ever got that way and you said it, you probably weren't (laughs) bragging and boasting. But I like this idea that there's something that we should continue to work past, that like acknowledgement of sin and trying to do the right thing isn't the end, that we need to continue to grow in the love and will of God, to, to be closer to the heart of God, to love those who God loves. Um, and to try to be perfect in love, 
Um, and so that's a goal that we strive for as United Methodists. So I loved John Wesley's understanding of grace. I also genuinely loved that within John Wesley's life, he did a couple of things that were pretty revolutionary. One, he had this thing called the Foundry in London, and the Foundry was a place that had um, a school. It had some social enterprise projects. They wouldn't have called it that then, where people could learn a trade. And mm. I think they had. I think he had sewing is what I think he had there, um, and so that people could earn money. Um, he. Uh, knew that you can't just administer or couldn't just minister to the spirit. You had to minister to the whole body. Right. And so early United Methodists or early Methodist ministers, they wouldn't have been called United Methodists at this point, um, were given what he called a, a primitive physic. And this primitive physic book had basic uh, medical advice. Now, None of the medical information in the 1700s is really that great. Well, like, yeah. leeches are in this book, right? But the idea that he had was, for some people, especially in America and colonial America, um, they are not going to be able to see a doctor right. either because doctors aren't in that area or because they're too poor to see a doctor. I'm going to give ministers some training in basic health, um, and hopefully these ministers can minister to body and soul. And so for him, it, I yeah. know, right? Like, so early, early uh, circuit writers, as we called them in the United States, um, or what would become the United States, had this. Um, the American Revolution really changed Methodism um, because yeah. uh, a, a ministry and a movement that started in England, as you can imagine, wasn't very popular in yeah. the 1770s. Well, same for us and, Episcopalians, yeah. <laughs> definitely. And so the United Methodist Church went on to ordain people and have bishops here in the United States. And because we grew up kind of alongside America, a lot of our structures of governance look like American structures mm. of governance. So we have a big general conference that meets. General conference is a democratic process. We elect people um, from our own clergy or our representatives. And then we have people who are come out of our local churches who are representatives. We have equal lay and clergy votes at right. these annual conferences. And then out of annual conferences come delegations to jurisdictional conference and general conference. And those are the groups that get to make decisions for general conferences, the group that gets to make decisions for the global body. Because of COVID, we didn't have general conference. And so this um, very traditional 2019 uh, special session of general conference is, has stayed and it has lasted um, in part because we didn't have a general conference right. in 2020. We're not going to meet again until 2024 as a nomination. Um, but I mean, I Methodist because both because of this beautiful church and what it does, but also because of John Wesley and John Wesley's emphasis on being in ministry with the poor, which is a very dis different uh, distinction than ministry for the poor. Right. Yeah. Um, so working with people in poverty, he went and preached and served alongside people that were in coal mines and out in the fields. And this was just really radical and not done at the time. Um, yeah. Much less patronizing. So this, right. Exactly. And so Imagine thinking that. about, <laughs> right. So thinking <laughs> about that, our origins and how beautiful that was and our emphasis on all of this, I also really genuinely love today in our practice of United Methodism, our connectionalism. And that's kind of what saddens me about these church disaffiliations, because yeah. I told you, not all churches are disaffiliating because right. of of full inclusion. Some of them are disaffiliating because they have other 
reasons. Um, some of them want to be autonomous and don't like to be told what to do. Yeah. Um, and some of them want to choose and hire their own preachers as opposed to have a bishop send a preacher through an appointment process. Regardless of the reason, it, it grieves me because we genuinely, I believe, are stronger when we're together. Yeah. We have several um, agencies within the United Methodist Church that do incredible work all over the world. One of them that I'm most um, impacted by and that I love is UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief. And that is specifically around disaster relief. Mm. We have seen a number of hurricanes. In our area, we've seen a number of tornadoes and, and flood events. Yeah. And back before climate change was what it is today, um, you, know, you might get one, quote, 500-year flood. Um, and then not have to deal with another flood for a while. Nashville had a huge flood in 2010 um, that just was devastating. And then we've had two other flooding events uh, just in the last three years, in addition to several tornadoes and um, climate scientists are telling us this is only going to get worse. And so having a United Methodist agency that responds in a beautiful way to disaster um, it's something I'm really proud of, and yeah. that takes money, and it takes lots of volunteers from all different ways of being of Methodist. And so part of my grief over the disaffiliations is that we're losing a lot of people and a lot of money, frankly, that could have gone into doing the most good yeah. through the United Methodist Committee on Relief. We also have a global board of general ministry, or sorry, General Board of Global Ministries, GVGM, based in Atlanta, that does excellent work all over the world, um, distributes grants for things like maternal health um, or clean water or um, house building. And there are so many ways that United Methodists, together through the power of money that we put in a pool that we call apportionments, mm-hmm. um, that we've been able to do. And now because of disaffiliations and just in general, the decline of the church in America, um, that's going to be cut back. But I'm incredibly proud of being United Methodist um, because of these reasons. And I have hope that one day we'll get to live into where I feel God is calling us to live, which is a fully inclusive space um, where our siblings will be ordained and be married um, because I think God's calling them. I know plenty of folks who have been called into ministry that have had to find homes in other denominations um, or other traditions because they were not welcome to the ordination process in the United Methodist Church. And I grieve because there were (laughs) were so many amazing, effective ministers, and now those ministers are part of other traditions. Um, So I pray that our church finds a place for them to serve in the near future. So, and and to circle back to the actual whole ordination process and your experience with it. So, how did you know, I mean, we we, we started on this and then, you know, well, we've not known each other a while, so it's easy to get sidetracked. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) I think we were, you know, you, you talked about heading to seminary. You know, not everybody that goes to seminary gets ordained. Um, Mm -hmm. so... You're at seminary, then what? Yes. So for me, um, I knew, let me backtrack because there's an important part of the story. Oh, yeah. I've never seen a female pastor before. I don't think that I realized what? that was an option for me. Um, I just had never had one in my ministry. There had been women that were laity that were like in charge of my Sunday school class or youth group, um, but they were not ordained ministers um so and i'd never seen for sure a female senior pastor um 
Yeah. Or at least I had not been to a church that had one. I may have seen one, but I had not, I did not put two and two together that women could be ordained. So I remember like when I was first speaking up about, about really loving working at Wesley Foundation and really loving my United Methodist Church, I remember that Michael McCord was like, well, you should be ordained. Um, And I was like, I I guess I just hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought that that was an option for me. And he took me to see uh, our district superintendent. You know what? I'm backtracking. I don't know that he said you should be ordained. I just remember he said, you should go and visit with our district superintendent, who was a woman, and I had no idea. (laughs) So I went and saw this this, um, fabulous district superintendent who talked to me a little bit about the ordination process and he went with me because I didn't have a car. (laughs) Um, And she gave me a book uh, called The Christian as a Minister. And that's the book that, um, I don't know if they're still doing this, but for many years, all United Methodist candidates had to read. And that was the first place that I'd kind of thought about this distinction between really faithful lay people and then ordained ministers. My dad is a very faithful lay person. Um, no matter what church he's in, he's taught Bible studies before, he volunteers, he's sang in worship services before he played guitar. Um, like, my dad is a very faithful lay person. And so I knew what a faithful lay person looked like. I just didn't have that language for it. Right. Um, but this book talked about the difference between ordination, which is a set-apart group um, that is called to be um, to, to be in professional ministry. Right. Um, Versus a faithful lay person. Uh, it also talked about the different orders of ministry, which is um, deacon, which is what I am, and an elder, which is what a lot of senior pastors of congregations are. But there are some deacon senior pastors. That's another story. And then to think about also lay servanthood. So there's a couple of different lay orders now. There's the office of home missioner and deaconess. And these are people who are lay people. They're not ordained, but they serve uh, faithfully in ministry with the connection of other folks. They take some seminary classes in our tradition. Um, So they have to take, I think, seven classes um, that are basic United Methodist studies classes. Mm -hmm. And so that really helped me kind of discern and think through what the various ways to serve in both ordained and lay ministry. It wasn't until I got to seminary that I really understood the call of the deacon that was because my very first experience was with a guy named Andy Peabody and Andy was an ordained deacon serving Mm -hmm. at Must Ministries in Marietta Georgia and he was working at a a shelter uh, and was really interested in helping be part of the solution to homelessness yeah and Andy, I just remember thinking, this is beautiful. You can be a faithful lay person um, and do this work too. But Andy is ordained by the church to do this. In other words, the church thinks this is so important that he, that the church has said, we feel like there needs to be somebody there ministering to the folks at this emergency night shelter. Yeah. And I loved that. I loved what he did. I loved the approach he took he had a justice lens for what he did and what he wanted to do um 
and he really helped open my eyes to what being a deacon could mean. And then I saw other deacons doing amazing work when I was in seminary. I just genuinely felt called to the order of deacon. In our book of discipline, which is kind of our, our law book, if you will, although to say it like that makes it sound really boring. <laughs> parts of it are parts of it are super boring. <laughs> parts of it are just brilliant and it's all written by committee and it reads like it was written by committee but in our book of discipline it says that the order of elder is ordained to word service compassion and justice and it says that the order of elder is ordained to word and service so we share those two um and then sacrament um and order and so uh, elders in our church can be district superintendents or bishops and provide um, structure and order to the church. Uh, they also have sacramental authority, um, which means they can really have two sacraments in our tradition, which is um, baptism and communion. Mm-hmm. And deacons can ask for that authority currently through a bishop, but elders are given that authority at their um, ordination. So in reading both of those and the descriptions of both of those, um, the words compassion and justice really caught my eye. Yeah. Um, those are definitely things that I've, um, tried to be about in my ministry and in my life. Yeah. And it's something that I felt called to, um, when I was in college, I was thinking about immigration and thinking about how we could have a more just immigration policy that allowed our country to be truly hospitable to people from other countries in a way that felt more like Jesus um, and less like, uh, this is my land and you can have it. Right. Um, And so when I was reading through just this description of these two callings, I felt very moved towards the order of deacon. So reading, I know that sounds silly, but reading the book of discipline, reading the Christian as minister, meaning to know Andy Peabody really helped me flesh out this call that I felt like I had to this ministry of word and service and compassion and justice. In fact, out of all of those, the thing I would have told you at the time was that I really didn't feel called to word. Is there any way I can be a pastor without ever having to preach? (laughs) You know, Honestly, I, the more that I've preached, the more I see how important it is to have deacons that preach and have deacons that share the word. Because when we come to scripture, we read it with the eyes of those who have been with folks um, throughout the week in our jobs. And we read it with different eyes than somebody who's been sitting in, you know, a finance meeting and a um, SBRC meeting and yeah. we, we just read yeah. it with, I think we bring a, a different view to the text sometimes I in think preaching. That, yeah, I'm sorry. And I was just saying, it sounds like deacons for y'all very much mirrors the way the deacons are seen in the Episcopal church, because the way it's been explained to me and why I have felt more called to the diaconate than anything else is because you have that one foot in the church and the one foot in the outside world is is kind of the simple way it's been explained. Yes. Yep. We believe that too. We believe that deacons are connectors or bridge builders between the church and the world. And I think also, so the biggest difference for us um, versus uh, Episcopalian view of the diaconate is that while you do have a permanent diaconate, your diaconate, doesn't get paid necessarily to be a deacon. I think that's changed. And I think they're paying the de- the deacons 
a little bit. It's not much. It's I think it's yeah. it's not a, yeah, that that was brought up you can work, recently. You can work at a church as a deacon and get paid as a I deacon by working oh, at a church. My, my sorry, my watch thought I was talking to it. <laughs> no, that's okay. So in our church, deacons and elders are both ordained clergy and mm-hmm. we have the same status. We both get uh with what's called a mandatory minimum compensation. Yeah. Um, and if your church isn't able to provide that, your church can apply for what's called equitable compensation mm-hmm. and the conference can pay a portion of your salary um, if the church isn't able to support a full-time pastor or even a part-time pastor in that way. But all that to say, that was one of the bigger differences. And when I yeah. met some deacons who didn't get paid to deacon, I was like, what? You don't get paid to yeah. deacon? Yeah. Um, and I think that's once again, who am I to say that that's not a valid way of, of doing that? Cause it's not my church tradition, but I am grateful that in the United Methodist church, yeah. this was an ordination path that has led to me being able to provide income for my family. Yeah. That's, um, that's a, that's a really big deal. I mean, I remember, I don't remember how you and I were talking about like your salary, which I won't say I, I remember, but I just remember at one point in time being surprised when you told me, you know, that you had this flat salary that no matter what, you were going to, you were going to be able mm-hmm. to be guaranteed that amount. And I just thought that was fascinating yeah. at the time. Um, yep. And I didn't make the distinction. I don't think I realized until recently that you were a deacon as opposed to an elder, an elder yeah. which I didn't even know y'all called it elders until just now. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> I know for us, it's, I guess el- elders are the same as what the rectors are for. Yep, for our, us. Yeah. And I, I guess is our priests, can deacons be priests? Are deacons priests? I think, I've heard y'all refer to the priesthood before, and I've always assumed that the term priest was similar to our word elder. Uh, yeah, that's my understanding as well. But there's always uh, something I learned that's a little bit different. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's one of those things. You can be a lifelong member of a church, and until you <laughs> decide to explore things a little bit more, that you're like, oh, I didn't realize that this was Oh, this my gosh, way. you have no <laughs> idea. The number of people that don't understand the difference between deacon and elder in the United Methodist Church, they just call me reverend, and at the end of the day, they don't really, I mean, I shouldn't say they don't really care. They do care. Uh, but they don't really know. Uh, I was just talking to somebody last week that didn't know that I was a deacon and what that meant for them. Yeah. Um, part of what it means in the United Methodist Church is that we are not itinerant. So elders in the United Methodist Church, um, in a prayerful process of discernment from the bishop and the appointed cabinet, which is usually the our middle bosses, our district superintendents, um, mm-hmm. plus a couple of folks, that group is called the appointive cabinet. And that appointive cabinet makes appointments of elders. And the idea is to move our elders in a way um, that helps fit church need and pastor's giftedness. It also They also take into account things like, um, does this particular church um, have, uh, is it in a city where that pastor spouse can work? Mm. Um, so if the pastor's spouse is a teacher or an arts administrator or a dentist, um, are they able to find employment in that right. city? Um, and then there are several pastors for whom um, they cannot itinerate because their spouse is in a position that is fixed to a certain location. Yeah. Um, so I have a friend whose wife is a dentist and she has her own dentistry practice and it's not really practical for him to move very far away from her dentistry practice. And so it's thinking about things like who, you know, how, how can folks move? Where's the best gift 
uh, where is the best place for this pastor to use their unique set of gifts? And so discernment's done with the congregation, with the committee called the Staff Church Relations Committee. That committee tells the district superintendent um, either this pastor is great, please, we would really like to keep them, or this pastor is not so great, we would really like to ask for a new pastor, mm-hmm. or we're open. If you feel like you need to move our pastor, we understand. Um, and if you feel like this pastor needs to stay, we're good with that too. And so this is a discernment process that happens between the district superintendent and the church and the bishop. Uh, and then the pastor discerns. The pastor says, I'd like to stay here. I'd like to move or I'm good either way. And so that's what the appointment season is all about. And so elders get told where to go by the bishop in the appointed cabinet. Deacons, we ask for our appointment. Um, so I okay. have... Every job that I've had, I have either found a job listing and applied for it um, or was told about the job word of mouth and uh, expressly interested in working there um, or some other way. In every case, the bishop had to bless it and had to see it as an appointment. Um, I've only worked in local churches with the exception of last appointment where I also worked in disaster case management Okay. And then did some consulting with some churches around asset-based community development. But that was part of being a deacon, right? I was actually getting to be out in the community with people who had been impacted by hurricanes and working with them as a disaster case manager. And I got to do that as an ordained deacon um, with pastoral care skills and everything that comes along with that. That's awesome. So. This year, or this particular appointment that I'm in now, I work at a church. And working at a church is much easier to say uh, this is uh, an appointment because it's a church, right? And right. Church, like, yes, this is an appointment. I've never not had my appointment blessed by the bishop. Was it's never been for an you issue. as opposed to I'm sure that there have been exactly. other yeah. had a hard time. I know for me, at least, that's something that I definitely am still struggling with. And I'm probably going to struggle with until the very end. Because the other part of it is, is it's, I realize that part of this process is what do I want, but it's also not just what do I want, but what am I actually being called for? So. Yes. And so I think here's the question. Um, can you do what you want to do within a lay minister's role? Like, for example, if you really get a kick out of worship leadership, can you be a worship leader and be a lay person? And well, there's a lot of really gifted lay people who are worship leaders. Yeah. Um, I think, but the thing that I, I think at least that I struggle with when I look at this is couldn't every single person with their gifts do what they're doing, whether they're ordained or not? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard, especially, especially for those who feel called to preach. Um, I mean, I guess you could preach and not be ordained, but no, we have that. We have like a a, a portion. So something that at least for me that I have felt more called to do lately, because I've been writing about faith and whatnot for years. Um, And I definitely feel at least for me more called to preach lately, but we also have a lay ministry with preaching. Yeah. We do too. And I actually, well, you know, 
there's at least one lay minister who I just, I prefer his sermons over a lot of my ordained peers. He's just a really gifted preacher. Yeah. Um, and not all of my ordained peers are gifted in that. Yeah. What ordination does for the person who is called to preaching is give you three years in my tradition. It may be the same or longer in your tradition of education around that. That makes you better at it, hopefully. Um, you have intensive studies of Old and New Testament with learned scholars who can challenge what you learned in Sunday school. You have dedicated time to look at it, right? So you have to go to school to be ordained in both of our traditions. And so to take three years of your life and dedicate it to mm-hmm. full-time ministry, um, that's not easily accessible for lots of people because they have families to support and work to do. I knew a lot of people who were the primary breadwinners for their family that went through ordination. And when they went through ordination, what they had to do was take classes a little bit at a time or figure out ways to make, uh, you know, an 80 hour a week happen where they were working 40 hours and going to school full time. And those are all really difficult things to do. Um, and so for some people, uh, in our tradition, we have a licensing program called Licensed Local Pastors. And for many of those folks, we were the primary breadwinners for their family who could not take the three years to go to school and do that full time. They did course of study, which allowed them to go and take classes at an approved place that taught it most of the time at the seminary. And they would go for a summer and take a class for a couple of weeks. They would have pre and post work to do. And then they would be licensed for ordained or for uh, ministry in a local setting. And so those folks can only do ministry within that local church that they're sent to um, or called to. And we have a lot of really gifted licensed local pastors and they're local pastors for lots of reasons, but one of the main ones was in accessibility, the time and, and or money for yeah. an education. Lots of places are making that less about money now. Candler, for example, is offering um, full tuition to students who are seeking their Master of Divinity. And I think are I going did see into- that. Yeah, I think I did see that. And I, I think, and I, I'm at least under the impression that in the Episcopal Church that there is a way to become ordained um, without having to, you know, take all that time off for school or that there's a way around it. That's at least the impression I get. I know that you can become a deacon as a path to becoming a priest or a mm-hmm. rector, which I don't know that yeah. I understand the difference between it all. But it's, and one other thing they've talked about, and at, at, in my class or my my cohort might be the first one that they have approached this idea with, but they're talking about the... um what do they call it? Um, not dual appointment, but where you basically it's, it's like you are a part-time minister along with having a, you know, job yep. elsewhere. Um, and that, that's going to yeah. be the way that more people are going to come to, because we're not really getting, this is not the eighties and nineties where there were a ton of new churches starting, right? right? Churches, they, the church in America generally is in a decline and this is across traditions, so it's not yep. just Methodism. Um, and so we're not going to be able to see a lot of churches that can support full-time ministers in the same way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've definitely heard that and even heard, you know Jake Hall, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and I've heard 
Jake talk about that in a podcast interview that he did with somebody else recently. Um, talking about really how the church exploded, I guess, in the 80s and the 90s, like you just said, mm-hmm. with all different types of ministers and ministries. And now it's becoming a lot smaller. Yeah, we think that bivocational pastors... That was the word. That, yeah, so bivocational meaning you've got basically yep. two vocations. You both you have both a day job and a, a mm-hmm. Sunday job. Yep. And hopefully your day job is flexible enough to allow you to visit people in the hospital or mm-hmm. when they have surgeries and to perform funerals. Or your job is part-time enough that you can schedule around it, right? So bivocational ministry is definitely something that we'll see, I think, continue to rise. Yeah. And I think there's lots of really faithful ways to do that, too. Um, what I would say is for people who feel called to ministry, um, the discernment has to be around, can I take that time out to do these studies, either through a licensing program over several summers or yeah. through three years of intensive schooling or through that three-year degree program stretched out over the course of mm-hmm. six or seven years, right, where you yeah. take classes? I, I would say I am a better pastor having been to seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, that's me personally. I grew in my preaching. I grew in my understanding of scripture and of how to apply scripture to preaching. I grew in my understanding of ethics. Definitely. I definitely grew in my understanding of pastoral care. Yeah. And I'm not saying you can't get this from any other place, but what I'm saying is for me, I would not have gotten this without going to seminary. Yeah. Um, Mercer set me up really well for success in seminary. I realized that my degree in religion from Mercer, Christianity from Mercer, was super helpful. By the time I had gotten to seminary, I'd already been made aware of, at the very least, a lot of the theologians we were talking about. And I had Mm -hmm. kind of a ground understanding of the history of Christianity from my classes. And then because I had taken a new and Old Testament class, I was already ahead of where a lot of my peers were in understanding scripture. But I didn't take a preaching class in undergrad. I didn't take a pastoral care class in undergrad. And these are all kind of the practice of ministry classes Mm -hmm. that you would get if you went to seminary. And while I don't use preaching every day, uh, the things that I learned in preaching class apply in a lot of different situations that I'm in. It's not just about exegesis of scripture. It's also about speaking and public speaking. It's also about just communication in general. And my journalism degree also helps me a lot in ministry. Um, I'm sure you could see this, um, having studied what I studied. (laughs) But so many um, folks, I think, don't realize how much I use my undergraduate degree in ministry. So because I understand journalism, I know about social media and about what we should be putting out there. And I look at our website differently, having had a background in journalism. Yeah. And I think about what we should be communicating. Um, The good news at my current appointment is we have an amazing communications director. That makes sense. (laughs) But not every church has that. A lot of pastors end up being the communication director because they don't have a full staff. Yeah. So... It helped, helps me helped me back when I was on smaller church staffs, but it helps me in my day-to-day work too. But I would say that I think each person, when they're discerning between ordained ministry and lay ministry, they have to decide, is occasional preaching and occasional maybe hospital visitation or um, occasional Uh, participation in the worship service, is that going to feel like I've satisfied God's call in my life? Mm. Or is this something that I'm called to do 
most of the time as opposed to some of the time. And is it something, could I do anything else and and scratch this itch? Because if you can, (laughs) please go do that, right? There you go. I mean, it's like my minister says, he goes, you actually are, and I'm sure you know this and have heard this, but when you become ordained, you actually are more limited and mm-hmm. some of the things that you can do and say, because now you're held accountable to somebody else mm-hmm. <laughs> in the hierarchy. Which, to me, that was in some ways, like I loved the United Methodist Church. I still love the United Methodist Church. I don't mean to make it sound past tense. Yeah, but no. when I was trying to make this decision, I wanted to yoke myself to it because despite all of her faults, I saw so much good and so many yeah. good things that could come out of it. Um, and this was coming from somebody that had been in several different religious traditions within the Christian faith. I've never not been part of a church outside of the Christian faith, but within the Christian tradition, I had been to different types of churches and fell in love with United Methodism, especially the way it was um, explained to me through the Wesley Foundation of Macon and near United Methodist Church. So I would say that, you know, do you love the institution enough despite her flaws? Right. Um, to be yoked to the institution. Um, It is like a marriage in Mm -hmm. that we have fights. (laughs) And it is also like a marriage in that there's divorce. There are clergy that are also disaffiliating at the same time that their church is disaffiliated. There are clergy who are going to other traditions or just becoming autonomous. Um, And so when you join, you join, uh, when you become ordained, you are part of the body of the church and that part is difficult on some layers because you don't always agree with what the big church says or does and there's been a lot of harm done in the name of jesus in every religious institution and so one of the things that i have struggled with especially recently is just the great harm that's been done within united methodism um united methodism has a lot of work to do when it comes to anti-racism Part of our work has to stem from the fact that at one point, um, you know, we we had kind of put all of the folks who were black and Methodist in their own jurisdiction to appease segregationists who weren't willing to be part of a United Methodist Church um, that had all folks um, equally treated and able to integrate. Right. And so. That is a shameful part of our past that's only been within the last 70 or 80 years that this existed, the central jurisdiction. Mm. Um, And I also have to deal with the fact that uh, while we, um, at the United Methodist Church, early on, John Wesley was against slavery. Um, The southern branch of the church split from the northern branch of Methodism during the Civil War. I read a book uh, about that. You know, that yeah. was that was apparently a minister with Macon connections. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. Oh, so yeah, his there, daughter was, was uh, one of the eighty pie founders. Really? Wow. I'm going to hmm. send you a link to that book because I read it when I went back to undergrad at Mercer. And I was like, wait a minute, Bishop Pierce and Bishop this and that. And oh my yep. God, I know these names. And these were mm-hmm. Macon people and they were in positions of power at Wesleyan College yep. and uh, yes. yeah looked at the names and I said oh my god that's one of the sorority's mm-hmm. founders oh lord yeah 
What am I doing so, with this? Right, exactly. And this is what the Methodist Church is saying now, right, in the South. What are we doing with the fact that when Weston United Methodist Church was founded, it wasn't United Methodist back then. It was Weston Methodist Episcopal Church South. Yeah. And what that meant is that we belonged to the branch of the church that said it was okay to own other humans. Yeah. Which now we're like, no, that's not okay. And so how can Weston be actively anti-racist? And how can I, as a United Methodist pastor, be part of helping the church see its racism and see the ways in which the legacy of racism continues on in systemic racism? Uh, and how can we be part of of bringing the church to a reckoning with its identity and how do we do that in a way that doesn't shame and guilt people into kind of inaction. Cause I think a lot of white folks get to that point where they're like, yeah. Oh, I feel so guilty. and so ashamed. What can I do? I can't do anything. And instead I want to say to them um, that guilt and shame doesn't get you anywhere. What we have to do is action, right? Like we have to vote as if black lives depended on it, because it does. And we have to make good public policy. And we do that as people of faith. We do that because uh, Jesus Christ said to us, um, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, that's the second greatest commandment. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's one of the big two. That's where I get frustrated with a lot of today's quote-unquote politics, is that people get so wrapped up, I think, in this whole idea of guilt, that mm-hmm. that I think that they they're 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 not seeing the forest for the trees because mm-hmm. you're so focused on this whole idea of making people feel guilty when that's not really what it is. It's it's doing something about it. It's trying to rectify yep. those wrongs. Like you just yep. said, the guilt doesn't does doesn't do a damn thing. No, well, you didn't say you that. Got, I did. <laughs> but, I didn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. But the guilt doesn't get us where we want to go. Right. I think folks, folks who have been oppressed for years, are not saying we want you to feel guilty about it. They're saying we want you to do something about it. Right. And until you do something about it, did you really learn anything? Right. Like, or is it just empty words meant to make yourself feel better? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, the United Methodist Church has a lot of issues that stem particularly in the South that stem from systemic racism. And that's not just, we did this in the past. It's currently, what are we doing currently? How are we still perpetuating systems of inequity with the way that we make appointments? Do black pastors get appointed to churches where they'll make money? Um, Are they getting, when we appoint people to cross racial appointments, meaning we appoint black folk to predominantly white congregations or white folk to predominantly black congregations or across any racial distinction. Are we actually training our folks that are in the pews to receive those pastors? Mm. Are we, are we causing more harm? That Um, part. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a lot of harm that continues to be done with compensation, with appointments. How do we help um, church buildings that are crumbling um, in poor communities? Um, How do we? Yeah. yeah. It's like you're saying the quiet parts out loud. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So the Methodist Church has a lot of work to do. And for me, part of my ordination journey was. Do I want to be yoked to an institution that has all this baggage? Well, part of that answer is there's not really a whole lot of institutions that don't have baggage. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it's like, um, did you, I, I feel like it's, uh, do you, you know who Andrew Manis is, Dr. Manis? Yeah. Yep. It's, it, isn't he the one that said that the church hour is the most segregated hour? 
It is, yeah. It yeah. is. It is. It still remains to this day one of the most segregated hours. And for lots of good reasons, I, you know, I, I want folks to feel safe and comfortable in their churches. Yeah. And I want to push people um, towards... Um, sorry, I'm getting another phone call. No, you're fine. Um, I want to push folks towards... Uh, Better. I want to push people who are comfortable towards discomfort. And I think that's part yeah. of my calling um, is to help us get to a better place as a community because mm-hmm. lives are at stake. Like it's really important that all of God's children flourish and that we provide spaces for all of God's children to flourish. Yeah. Um, and you're saying that and, also even during Pride Month. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's, you know that's another segment of the population that has been severely damaged by, by the church and church institutions. Church institutions have actively caused harm in that community and continues to cause harm. Um, And so how do we be part of transformation? How do we listen to voices and be led by voices Mm -hmm. towards healing and wholeness? Um, and so that's part of my call in the ministry is to be uh, connecting the church to the world in that way and connecting the world to the church and to say to the church, we've got a lot of wonderful, great things that are part of our history and our tradition. And I want to bring a lot of the good things forward into the future. And we've got a lot of things that we would do best to leave behind because yes. it doesn't serve, it doesn't serve us anymore. Right. And, and can hurt but, people even more than mm-hmm than just yeah. the not serving us anymore thing. I totally believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work. And for me to believe that the Holy Spirit is at work means that I think that the Holy Spirit is still teaching us and still crafting us towards who we need to become. I don't think that God's revelation was a one and done. Like, I don't think God revealed who God was through scripture and through the events in scripture. And then I was like, okay, we're good. Nothing else needs to happen. And so I think part of the work of the church is to continue to listen to the Holy spirit as they guide us towards what's next. And in my gut and in my heart, I feel the spirit leading us towards a place of full inclusion. I feel the spirit leading towards, um, creating a more just world and that looks different in different parts of the country it looks different around the world um i think speaking of the world i think the faith community has to do more for the climate and for the planet and that's part of my job as a pastor is to say to the church what we're doing is hurting the earth can we help heal the earth um and what does that look like um really to help the people that are sitting in the pews put a practical lens on their face to see that the belief that they have in God and the songs that we sing on Sunday should have some impact on the way they act Monday through Saturday. Um, yes. That they should <laughs> vote with their convictions and their beliefs and not just about some of the hot button issues that people of faith have traditionally voted on, but to vote for a candidate, for example, who um, lays out a great agenda to help reverse climate change. That is a faithful vote for that particular politician um, or for that particular bill. 
it's also for me getting that person out into the community um, so that if they have been isolated, that they see the joy and gift of their full community and not just the people that look like them or act like them. Mm-hmm. And it's for me also about moving past ministry for that patronizes and belittles and instead engages in ministry alongside and with. We were just in Guatemala last week with an organization uh, in San Juan and San Pablo, La Laguna, doing really incredible work. And they're doing this with the folks that live in the community. So they are now, they've now shifted to hiring predominantly people that live in these communities Mm -hmm. because they believe that the people that live in these communities know them best. Yeah. They, and they want to create jobs for this community. Um, they believe in creating adolescent health programs that provide adolescents around the lake full understanding of sexual orientation and gender identity and what's happening with their bodies when they go through puberty. And to do things in some really inventive and creative ways that honors indigenous wisdom around the lake and I think that that's the type of ministry that we're called to is to work alongside and with. And so we come down there and we help with money and support. Um, and then also ask the bigger questions of why aren't these communities thriving, right? right. Well, there's a lot that goes into that. There, If your main uh, export is agriculture and climate change is dramatically impacted, yeah. the ability to grow coffee and corn, and that's what you export. Um, then what can I do here to help lessen the impacts of climate change there so that they can continue to work in their economy? How does what I pay for these goods at grocery stores impact them, right? Like thinking about purchasing fair trade coffee from cooperatives, um, thinking about organic produce specifically from these areas too. And also being aware of what greenwashing can do and Mm. and not just buying things with labels without asking questions. Right. Right. And so how can we walk alongside? How can we do good and not do further harm? John Wesley had three general rules and this is a paraphrase of them, but his first general rule was to do no harm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's such an important role when we think about what the church can do and what pastors can do in the world. The second one was to do all the good that you can and so to actively seek to do good. Um, and then the third one was to stay in love with God or as Wesley would have put it, attend to the ordinances of God, mm-hmm. which means participating in a regular service of worship and receiving the elements as often as you can and studying scripture and praying and being in community with one another. He felt community was incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, for spiritual growth and having a group of accountability uh, that you could share the deepest and and worst parts of what was going on and who you were and your life and be there for one another. And that's, as a pastor, what I feel called to help kind of flourish and uh, flame. And how can I be part of creating uh, a more just world through this framework that is so flawed with such horrible history (laughs) and such delightful history too. I love it. I love it. Well, I, you know, you know, I I love you and I've always loved you and everything you've had to say. So I'm just. Thanks, Molly. I love you too. You're welcome. And I'm super flattered that you're willing to talk with me about this and that you were nice enough to also write to me before in the beginning of this process, what you thought my gifts were and whatnot. So 
Yes, um, I think you've got tremendous gifts, and I think you will be a gift to the church no matter how you live out those gifts. And I'm excited for you in this discernment process. Somebody very early on told me something that is very valuable that I want to pass along to you, yeah. and that is that if <laughs> when I realized that I wanted to be ordained or that I felt called to ordination, I remember saying to somebody, why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> and they they said to me that if they had told me that I probably would not have done it. And they they were right, in part because of my personality. And I think I share this personality trait with you, which is stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like not doing what other people tell me to do. But also in part, it was it's a journey, right? Yeah. Like you, I genuinely had to figure that out for myself. And I wouldn't have... It would have been almost shallow if I had just done it based off of somebody saying, you should be ordained. Yeah. Um, it was a realization that I came to that I felt most alive when I was doing this work. Right. That I genuinely liked studying scripture and liked being with people. And for me, too. I really like those being with them at those threshold moments. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk much about this, but thinking about... Like as a pastor, I get invited to sit with people as they die. Yeah. That's a profound, yeah, profound, sacred gift. The ability that they give me, the ability to sit with somebody through this transition that I've not been through yet, right? Yeah. For myself, obviously, yeah. I'm talking to you in a live. But <laughs> just that thin space of walking with a family and with their loved one as they die. Um, and then the thin space of when a baby's born mm-hmm. and being there. I love going to visit at the hospital, um, you know, in the, the hours or days after a child is born. Um, and then being there with them through the tragedy and heartbreak uh, when a child dies mm-hmm. or when a beloved member of the community is severely injured or hurt, like being with the church and with the people at that point is a profound gift. It's a sacred gift um, that is beautiful. And I don't take that for granted ever. And there are very effective lay people who do all of these things too. Um, But for me, you know, the person that you call when you want to get married, you're in the church as the pastor. So I get to be with them during those moments. And I get to walk with the family in grief and, and preside over the community over the, the funeral or the celebration of life. And that is a profound gift and a sacred gift that I love. And that's the reason why ordained ministry for me was the path. And those are the things that you get to be discerning yeah. over the next several months for yourself. And I'm so grateful that you're discerning that. and Grateful for whatever call that God has placed in your life, whether that's lay ministry, that's faithful, uh, or the diaconate or the priesthood. Um, whatever you do, I know will be beautiful. And I'm already grateful for the people that you're going to impact with that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for you because you have made an impact definitely on me and my kids over the years. And actually, I, before we close out really, really quick, one of the things that I love to reflect on uh, about you as a minister is the time that we were visiting Centenary and my oldest child popped his head up from under the church. I still don't really know how he did that, but I just remember visiting and sitting there in the congregation and seeing, oh my God, Bishop has like popped his head up. I love his- that he felt comfortable enough to like do that. I just love that. He's like, I love that. Like, it felt like calmed down, right? He's like, well, here I am. This church I've never been to before. <laughs> I feel comfortable enough to climb up there. He, I was I figure out how he did it. He was, like, underneath 
somehow with the youth, I guess, under the church. And he just popped his head right up in the middle of it. And his whole face was like, oh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. There he was. There he was. The whole congregation during the service. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And nobody was Um, phased by it. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Of all of the things in our church... That's surprising. That's, <laughs> we we are accustomed to things like that, um, and that was great. I just love that he felt comfortable enough to do that. <laughs> and but now, now he's the child who's who who is um, an acolyte at Saint Francis, and anytime Father Ben so much as strays by a hair, he gets a death glare from Bishop because Bishop's oh like, you're God. doing something different. He and loves d- the order. That's hilarious. He I loves love that, though. the order. And if Father Ben strays from it, you can see Bishop in the service giving him a look like, what are you doing? We didn't practice this. Is not this. in the BCP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. That makes my day. It's so um, funny. And oh having kids fully participate in the life of the church is beautiful and holy and needs to happen everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stacy. And yeah. Jonathan, I said hello and hugged the baby oh, well. for me. And hopefully one of these days I'll get to see you soon. I hope so, too. Bye, dear. Good luck. Right. Keep me updated. I will. Bye.